Hey, everybody, and welcome to the Neighbors Church podcast and our Sunday teaching. This past Sunday, the file got corrupted, but this teaching we consider such an integral part of our community that we felt it important to re-record it. So I'm in Shua's garage studio, going to give this teaching one more time for the sake of you, dear listener. So I pray you're blessed. I pray you're encouraged. I pray your formation takes the, sh- the shape, the shape of the kingdom of God, and uh, that Jesus would dwell in your heart with joy and flourishing. Let me pray for us. Father, thank you for uh, an opportunity to capture the things that we find most important for our community and to share our teachings um, for those that weren't there and for those that listen in on what we're doing as a church. And so we worship you now. And these values are so integral. They are they form the very DNA of who we are as a people. May these seeds be planted deeply. Holy Spirit, may you bring about great and beautiful transformation through the adoption of these values and these practices for our highest flourishing, for our greatest happiness, but most importantly, for the well-being of the world, for those that you have sent us to, that we might be healing agents in a broken and painful time. In Jesus' name, amen. A couple years ago, when our family was still living out in college area, one of the local churches out there had on their marquee the section of our topic text from which we draw our second value. Psalm 46, verse 10, reads this way. Be still and know that I am God. This little church in the two years that we were living out there, they never changed the sign. In fact, it's probably still out there today. If you live in the San Diego area, you could drive out to college area and you would see, be still and know that I am God, still posted on that little church marquee. And honestly, every time I drove past it, I could not think of a more beautiful and a more important message for our world, for our culture to hear coming from the church. You know, if you're listening to this podcast, you were invited by somebody to check it out and you're considering Christianity, you're curious, you're looking for something, that should sound amazing to you in in your ears. It should bring a stillness about you. Just even hearing the words, be still and know, to know that God is there, to know that God is in the chaos, that he cares, that he is ruling, that he is going to bring ultimate good into this world in the final days, be still and know that I am God. What a beautiful message for our society. The only problem was the letter D on the word God on the marquee had actually fallen off. So instead the verse read, be still and know that I am go. (laughs) Because the, the G was capitalized for God, every time I drove past this sign, it would read like this in my head, be still and know that I am go. It was so intense. Now that's funny. It it, it cracked me up, but there really is a, a tragic irony with the missing letter on the church marquee sign because it hits so true with the reality of how the modern church's actual message is given to the world. 
we Christians, especially in our tribe, which is the Protestant evangelical non-denominational tributary, we simply do not have categories for slowing down, for resting, for being still. Everything in our life is go, and it is go all the time. German sociologist Harmut Rusa says, the driving cultural force of that form of life that we call modern is the idea, the hope and desire that we can make the world controllable. And so this incessant and honestly delusional need to make the world controllable, it has been adopted by God's people. We just tend to stamp Jesus's name onto our striving. We stamp Jesus's name onto our worrying and we stamp Jesus's name onto our overworking. And this way of being and this way of doing the church, it has created an endless list of leaders and lay volunteers alike who have worked so sacrificially, who have worked so hard, but their hearts have hardened. Somewhere we began to believe the lie that constant low-grade fatigue is a mark of serving Jesus faithfully, that busyness equals fruitfulness. We began to believe the devastating lie that our interior world could be in utter chaos as long as the exterior world looks calm and cool and collected. And dear listener, no one is buying it, not even you, not even me. The bluff, the bluff has been called. The jig is up. The ruse is over. Whatever turn of phrase you want to describe this moment that we find ourselves in, nobody is trying to keep up with this any longer. Our neighbors, our friends, our families, maybe you, dear listener, you're, you're listening. You're, you're watching Christians to see if we have anything of actual value to offer, anything of substance that will help us not only survive, but thrive and find true happiness, which is what every human on this planet is ultimately looking for. But just like the sign with the missing letter, be still and know that I am go, the world around us gets a mixed and contradictory message from the church. We say God loves us. We say God is good. We declare that God is a king who rules over the universe. We declare that he's our provider and our protector. And that all sounds like a recipe for what St. Paul called peace that surpasses understanding. Those ideas of love and goodness and protection and provision, you would think we would be a people of the highest flourishing and the greatest happiness. And yet when the genuinely curious look at our lives, what they see is that we are just as anxious We are just as busy. We're just as insecure, just as envious, angry, and uncertain. We are just as fatigued and exhausted. Really, the only difference between us and our non-believing peers is that we add this extra layer of guilt to our already emotionally fragile state because we have these strange commitments to an archaic book. And to top it off, we have these bizarre Sunday rituals where we have church attendance as a priority and it eats up half our weekend but it doesn't really do any transforming work in our souls. Why would anyone want to do that? Worse yet, this deformed message from the church, it's damaging. At the root of so much deconstruction is a generation of Christians raised in communities where lots of words were spoken, lots of demands made, lots of expectations laid down, but the actual behaviors and lives and hearts of the people didn't line up. There was incongruity. There was uh, hypocrisy. 
And so accusations of hypocrisy coming from the deconstructing and the cynical, they land true. And so for us as a community, by God's good grace, and I would say by God's discipline in my personal life, my wife's life, and our experiences over these years leading in the church, we at Neighbors have been brought and are practicing repentance in this, per, in this particular area. Repentance. To the cynical and to the deconstructing, we agree with you and we apologize for the hypocrisy. And to you, dear listener, you're just searching for something that will help you today through your loneliness, through your depression, with the anxiety. We are sorry that we haven't shown you the way. We may have spoken words about knowing the way, but our actual lives have not shown you the way as we've been living it. And so in our repentance, we turn from our activity and we learn to be still. We also recognize that we have not figured this all out. In the church planting world, it's such a curious thing when new people join a church. There's always these little quips and quotes that come back to me. Oh, neighbor's church. You guys are doing it. You guys are, you figured, yes, stillness and simplicity and spirit. Wow, you guys are the ones doing it right. That's crazy. That is crazy. And we are not doing anything right, but we do, we do, as an act of repentance, hold the second of three values, stillness, as paramount in all that we not only say, but in what we actually do with our lives. So our tagline on our website for this value reads, stillness. We are embodied souls. By becoming still and attuning our awareness to God, we are reconnected with Him in loving union. Stillness is the practice of the presence of God, detaching from our past, not fixating on our future, but simply being with God. And so for us, stillness is all about becoming present to what is actually in front of us in any given moment. Stillness creates a posture of heart, mind, body, and soul that is eventually saturated with God. And this practice of stillness, this value of stillness, slowly over time brings personal human flourishing. And that flourishing overflows into our circles of influence for the well-being of others. We become what Friedman called a non-anxious presence in the midst of all of the panic. Stillness is a way of being in the world where we have slowly stopped running from our past and we have slowly stopped anxiously striving towards our future. Stillness is an act of letting go. We recognize that we do not have control. We never had control. We never will have control. And as you begin to practice stillness and you make it one of your own personal values, those initial days, those initial months, even the initial years of learning to slow down, rest, be still, they can be terrifying. Because we've believed the lies, Hartmut Rosa says, that we can make the world controllable. So when we get still, we begin to ask ourselves, if we're not moving and doing, isn't everything going to fall apart? Who's going to take care of us? Who's going to protect us? Who's going to provide for us? If we're not pressing and pushing and keeping up with hustle culture, how are we ever going to amount to anything? How will we become someone who will know us? Who and how will we be loved? At the root of our anxious striving is a need to be known, accepted, and loved. And so stillness is about radical, revolutionary, heart-transforming trust in the God who knows us, protects us, provides for us, and loves us. Now, Jesus of Nazareth, his life, his teachings, his rhythms, 
they modeled, he modeled a way of being in the world that was tremendously productive, more productive than you and I will ever be. Very, very active. Jesus's activity was constant, it seemed. But Jesus lived from a place of repose and rest. He spent 40 days prior to the launching of his public ministry alone in the solitude, in the wilderness, in the desert, where the Spirit had led him to be tested by Satan himself. And so there in the silence and in the quiet, Jesus learned to be still as he trusted in his Father. Throughout his ministry, we see Jesus practicing this discipline of silent mornings of prayer in the quiet, alone. And so Jesus taught us rhythms of work to retreat, retreat to work. In every way from stillness, Jesus acted. To do so, what we know about him is that he believed certain things and then he physically embodied those beliefs through practices. Jesus believed the truths of God and then he behaved in accord with those truths. It was congruous. There was no lack of integrity. There was no hypocrisy. From Jesus' life, we see that there is a twofold path to stillness and both poles of the path are required, belief and embodied practices, belief and our behavior. These twofold pieces of the puzzle are what will create deep stillness in the soul over the course of our lives. Let's start with belief. Stillness is formed by what we actually believe. It starts with our deepest faith structures. And so Jesus, he believed that he was loved perfectly as a child of God. And he lived out of that security. He didn't need to strive to maintain his image. He didn't care what the cultural elites of his day thought. He didn't really care what his disciples thought. He knew himself to be secure as his father's father's loved son. Jesus believed that his father would protect him and provide for him. In in panic-inducing situations, Jesus would make these ludicrous comments towards the Roman soldiers who were coming to take him. Don't you know that I could call upon legions of angels to protect me. He was so certain of God's protection. He was so certain of God's provision for him. And so Jesus's life, which was free from material attachments, reflected the depth of his trust. Jesus believed that God's purposes were unfolding on the day in, day out of his life. And so he didn't need to strive or hustle or make it happen. Jesus believed. Now, the author of Hebrews He pastorally encouraged his community picking up on this necessity of belief for stillness saying, Hebrews chapter four, verses one to two, since the promise of entering his rest still stands, let us be careful that none of you be found to have fallen short of it. For we also have had the good news proclaimed to us just as they did. But the message they heard was of no value to them because they did not share the faith of those who obeyed. The author here is speaking of the ancient Israelites who didn't combine faith with the messages they heard from Moses. The ancient Hebrews never actually entered into God's rest throughout the entirety of the Old Testament because they never came to deeply believe. Their faith structures were never truly surrendered to God. They never observed and took into account the work that God had done for them and let it bring them to a place of rest and stillness. And so the messages that were given by Moses were never met with faith that produced rest. Instead, they were always resisted with anxiety and strife. Throughout the Old Testament narrative, we see the ancient Hebrews panicking, worshiping other gods, taking matters into their own hands, never becoming still because they never actually believe in the goodness and the capabilities and the guarding of Yahweh, their God. 
millennia after the Exodus, God was still pleading with his people through the prophet Isaiah saying, in repentance and rest is your salvation. In quietness and trust is your strength, but you would have none of it. And so the Hebrews never surrendered the weight, the fullness of their lives into the hands of God. And so they withered away in wildernesses and exiles of constant activity, pointless distraction, crippling doubt, terrible anxiety, and ultimately separation from God's presence. Understand something about the book of Hebrews. Hebrews is a sophisticated message. It's really a sophisticated explanation on how Jesus's life, death, and resurrection has done all that is needed for you and I to be completely forgiven, forever accepted, brought into the dance of love within the Holy Trinity. Hebrews explains to us that one day we will be glorified in the kingdom to come, co-ruling the universe alongside Jesus. The truths that are presented in the book of Hebrews, when we begin to believe them in our deeps, We are forgiven, accepted, adopted. We are part of the Trinity. We are part of one another. One day we will co-rule with Jesus. The only thing that that deep type of belief and those types of truths can produce is rest. It's stillness. And so the entire book, really the entire Bible, is ultimately a call for humanity to believe in the goodness and capabilities of God and to rest in Him. But we need to understand something. This is so important about biblical belief. Because biblical belief is more than an intellectual assent to something in agreement. You as a late modern Western believe that you are a jar in a brain separated from your body. We have all these categories, a disembodied spirit, a soul that's separated from the body, a body that's separated from the mind. But biblical belief surrenders everything, heart, mind, body, soul, the whole weight of one's being and purposes into the hands of God. And so we have to actually embody our beliefs. And this is that second pathway to stillness. At Neighbors, we like to say we have to get our theology into our biology. Our beliefs have to actually get into our bodies and behavior. So for example, when Jesus says, today has enough trouble of its own, don't worry. Look at the sparrows, I fed them. Look at the lilies of the field, they've been clothed. We in our minds say, oh, I believe that. That's such wonderful news. That's, I trust that. But then we go through our day full of anxiety, strife and worry about what we will eat and what we will wear because we haven't gotten our theology into our biology. We haven't gotten our belief into our body. Christianity is intensely kinesthetic. New word class, kinesthetic. Kinesthetic means having to do with movement or sensation, especially with the body, within the body. Christianity is intensely kinesthetic. Christian theology does not separate the mind and the soul and the body. We are a mind, soul, and body. And so what we do in our bodies physically influences and changes things spiritually. We behave in accord with what we believe, but we must also practice behaviors that form our beliefs. It's a sort of chicken and egg thing. Which comes first? Belief that God will provide for us so we cease striving or being still and not striving as a means of solidifying the belief that God will provide. It's both equally. Doing something in your body produces and forms faith and transformation. Form That formed faith and transformation then produces behavior in your body. It is a both and. 
So here's a, here's a really clear example from worship on Sunday mornings in my own life. When the psalmist commands uh, in Psalm 95.6, come, let us bow down in worship. Let us kneel before the Lord, our maker. That is not just pretty spiritual imagery. That is a command for God's people to physically embody a spiritual belief. And so we are to bow physically before God. Why? Because we believe that he made us. We bow because it's humbling, because we believe that God is mighty. He is the authority. We literally physically kneel as an act of surrender and subjection to our God that made us and to his power, not just in our belief, but with our physical bodies. Christianity is kinesthetic. kinesthetic. But truth be told, and this I'll just speak from my own life, Many, many, many times, so many Sundays, I am not overflowing with this sense of deep certainty that the Lord is my maker. In fact, so many Sundays over these many decades now of walking with Jesus, I have walked into Sunday morning not even sure that there is actually a maker. And so I must, in those moments, practice embodying what I know to be my truest truth, my deepest belief, by still bowing. And as I kneel, my body physically enacts what I know I truly believe. And that physical act reforms and reinforces my truest faith. And to be even more honest, sometimes I literally won't bow because I'm more concerned about what other humans will think. So instead of kneeling as an act of embodied faith, I remain standing. And in that moment, I am saying in my mind, I believe God is worthy. I believe God made me. I believe God is mighty. I believe God is my authority. I believe I should be humbly bowed down. But my body is reinforcing the false belief that what these other dirt balls around me in whom God has breathed his life, what they think about me is more important than what my maker thinks about me. Does that make sense? There's a divorce from my inner belief structures and my embodied belief. And so we need to see this. When our belief is wavering, our bodies must enact our truest belief to overcome wrong beliefs. Our spirituality is never separated from our physicality, and our physicality is never separated from our spirituality. And so that brings us back to Jesus of Nazareth. His belief and his embodied behaviors that produced this life of stillness. We draw from Jesus's life three key embodied practices that form stillness, and they are Sabbath, silence, and solitude. These are practices that we engage with, with our physical bodies, whether we believe or feel or whatever, in a rhythmic, disciplined way, we practice Sabbath, silence, and solitude, just as Jesus did, to form stillness in our lives. Very briefly, Sabbath. Sabbath is a 24-hour period of time to stop all work, to literally cease doing for the sake of resting, delighting, and simply being with God and others. If you've been following along with neighbors for any amount of time, you've heard teachings on Sabbath. It saturates so much of what we do. It is at the very core of who we are. Beginning in January, actually, if you've made neighbors your home and you're part of our community, I'm so excited about this. Our friend John Mark Comer. Now in Orange County, once from Portland, has started a new ministry called uh, Practicing the Way. 
And the material that John Mark and his team are putting out is so incredible. So starting in January, for the entire year, we're going to be taking all of our small groups through these modules that will deep dive these practices, Sabbath, silence, solitude, and many others, care for the poor, fasting, scripture memorization, all of those types of things. I I literally can't wait. Suffice it to say, just as a, uh, a priming of the pump, Jesus believed in Sabbath. He believed that his father had created all things in six days and then appointed the seventh day structure as a gift of Sabbath to humanity. And so Jesus declared to all humans, Sabbath is a gift for you. It's part of the grain of creation. Then Jesus declared himself to be our Sabbath rest based on his life, death, and burial and resurrection. And then Jesus said he was the Lord of the Sabbath, having done everything necessary to bring us to God. And so we as New Covenant Christians, apprentices of Jesus, we don't practice Sabbath as a means of becoming righteous. We practice Sabbath to remind ourselves that we are righteous. We aren't Old Testament Jews. We don't have to take 24 hours off on the seventh day to be right with God. But we do take 24 hours off on the seventh day to remember that we are completely right with God and we rest in his finished work and we celebrate it. What Sabbath keeping does is it sets our lives to the pace of heaven. Weekly Sabbath embodies our belief in the Father's providence and power in the goodness of Jesus and his ministry, his crucifixion, his resurrection. In the presence of the Holy Spirit, weekly Sabbath embodies our belief in these things so that we can walk into our week from Sabbath, present to the moment, unrushed, unhurried, and focused. Now, silence. Silence is the literal ceasing from speaking. And when Christians are first introduced to the practice of literal silence, just ceasing speaking, it is very disoriented. We are so addicted to noise. We are so addicted to distraction. And we are like heroin addicts coming off of heroin. The withdrawals can be painful. They can be so terrifying. And it is because, again, our false belief that we can control thing with control the world with our words. Richard Foster in Celebration of Disciplines, probably one of the most important books on spiritual disciplines, wrote this. This is my favorite quote on silence. We are so accustomed to relying upon words to manage and control others. If we are silent, who will take control? God will take control, but we will never let him take control until we trust him. Silence is intimately related to trust. This revolutionary heart transforming trust of stillness that silence brings about. Now, the mystics of antiquity said that God's first language is silence. Jesus, we know from the Gospels, spent many hours in silence just listening to God's first language. He didn't need to manipulate his father with his words, he didn't need to manage or control God and others with more words. He believed. And he rested in the silence, just being still. And it was in the stillness of silence that Jesus discerned the subtle, the very small whispers of God's will through him. So that when Jesus went about his ministry, his activity for the day, when he actually did speak, when he actually did do, he was doing as his father would do. He was speaking as his father would speak. Sabbath, silence, and our third embodied practice that forms stillness is solitude. Solitude is the literal retreat from all connection, be that through media, technology, or any sort of human interaction. And again, in our chaotic, overcrowded culture, 
this can be a big and overwhelming step for some. Now, if you're an introvert, the idea of solitude just sounds like a dream. You get out by yourself. You don't have to talk with any people. You can read your books. And I suppose in some sense that's true. But the deeper one goes into solitude, the more deeply aware the spirit makes you of who you are in your brokenness, the false selves. And deep solitude can be just as terrifying and overwhelming and disorienting for the introvert as for the extrovert. What we see from the life of Jesus is that he balanced the frenzy and the exhausting activity of ministry with intentional times of retreat into solitude. I'm convinced that Jesus's inexhaustible compassion for the crowds, it was formed by and it was fueled by stillness in the solitude. Early morning times of prayer and the quiet and alone, Jesus was reinforcing the belief that his father and the spirit were with him, working through him, that he was never, ever truly alone. And I believe Jesus learned who he truly was in his deeps in the places of solitude with just God alone. And so at Neighbors, this is a lifelong endeavor for us. Over the course of our entire lives, we implement in a disciplined way, intentional ways, these types of embodied behaviors, these practices, and many others that we'll be rolling out again in 2023. But as a means of unifying, we do this to unify our message to the world, not only through our words, but also through our ways. And as we get ready to wrap this up, I, I don't ever want to overpromise and underdeliver on this stuff. This requires a tremendous amount of effort. Um, we Christians, especially in our affluent and fast food culture, we want things handed to us on a plate and we want it to come easy. But nothing good in life comes easy, especially soul transformation. And so the, the movement towards stillness requires a tremendous amount of effort. The paradox of stillness is that it requires intense activity of a certain kind to develop and to grow in. Rest requires labor. Again, the very sophisticated author of Hebrews, Hebrews chapter 4, verse 11, put it this way, Let us, therefore, make every effort to enter that rest so that no one will perish by following their example of disobedience. If you're excited about solitude, stillness, Sabbath, becoming a person of presence and stillness, just understand that it will be arduously hard work. We must labor to believe, and then we discipline our bodies to manifest what we say we believe. We counterform our minds through meditation and scripture medita and memorization, and then we manifest with our bodies what we have read and come to believe. You know, some of Jesus's most famous words, they reflect this combination of resting to work and then working out of that place of rest. Matthew 11, come to me, all you who are weary and burdened, and I'll give you rest. Take my yoke upon you and learn from me, for I'm gentle and humble in heart, and you will find rest for your souls, for my yoke is easy and my burden is light. The paradox is in his words, come to me. That's our effort. That's our work. We must make the intentional uh, movement towards him, all you who are weary and burdened, and then I will give you rest. The rest he gives is given as a gift to just freely receive. But then Jesus says, take my yoke upon you and learn from me. A yoke was an ancient implement of work. We come to Jesus to receive the work that he has called us to do, not just to sit and ponder our navels, but we must learn to work from a place of rest out of his ways, 
because he says he is gentle and humble in heart, and then you'll find rest for your souls. Then the yoke is easy. Then the burden is light. There's an Eastern Orthodox scholar that uh, I was reading in, a couple years ago now, and he uh, quotes and talks about this idea of the rest that Jesus intends to give us and what kind of rest it actually is. Uh, he writes, True, Jesus gives us rest, but we must be clear that such rest is totally different from resting up in order to get back to the daily toils of life, different too from the recreation or distraction or vacationing, all of which are ordered to getting back to the serious part of life. It seems to me that this rest for our souls is intended by Jesus to be a real and genuine state of life. The natural condition in which a child of God habitually exists and not just a passing phase of recovery. It is a deep condition of the soul that is quite compatible with all the ordinary activities and efforts of human life. The one who truly becomes God's child, like Jesus, enjoys such rest as the very element of existence in which he swims. Oh my gosh, doesn't that sound incredible? Doesn't that sound like something of substance that would bring flourishing and deep, deep happiness? Rest is a state of existence. This is what is on offer to us in the practices of Christianity. It sounds incredible, but it will be a lifetime endeavor full of intense effort, friends. We will spend the rest of our lives discerning the false beliefs that have been driving us, having them reformed by the scriptures, and then having our minds renewed by the words of God, and then embodying those practices, whether we feel them or not, that bring about the realities of what we say we believe. As we approach 2023, these practices will continue to be an integral part of who we are as a community. I just want to encourage you as we wrap up, if there's been any inkling of hope stirred in you today, that's a gift of the Holy Spirit. That there's a way of being that your King invites you into that's not constantly striving, that's not always overwhelmed. It requires simplicity. You do have to let go of a lot of stuff, the materialism, the overcrowded calendar, the distraction. And then you have to put effort into becoming still. If you think of us as... Uh, on a hamster wheel, the momentum just keeps carrying us. And so you have to slow it down ever so incrementally and carefully. But the end of all of this, friends, the end of all of this, as the author of Hebrews says, is union with God. Your God is for you today. He's with you. He loves you. He knows what you need before you even ask. He intends to work through you today. And so be still and know that he is God. Shalom, friends.